John chapter 13. Just beyond where we looked this morning, John chapter 13, beginning in verse 1, verse 6, or page 1673, if you're using the Pew Bible. God's word given to us for our good. John 13, verses 1 through 20. It was just before the Passover feast. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. The evening meal was being served, and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, You do not realize now what I am doing. But later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord, Simon Peter replied, Not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, A person who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him. And that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes, returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you, should wa- you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master. Nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. I am not referring to all of you. I know those I have chosen. But this is to fulfill the scripture. He who shares my bread has lifted up his heel against me. I am telling you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am he. I tell you the truth. Whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me. And whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. The grass withers, the flower fades. God's word endures forever. Amen. The Gospel of John splits up into two distinct halves. And this is the beginning of what people consider the second half of the Gospel of John. And it is called the Book of Glory. The part before this, the half before this, is called the Book of Signs, which culminates, of course, in in Jesus' raising of Lazarus, and and we saw how uh, that really sets the tone for chapter 12, after Jesus uh, raises Lazarus from the dead, kind of sets the tone for chapter 12, that meal in Bethany that we we, uh, uh, saw this morning, and then Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And we see how, in many ways, that gets things going. Everyone's worried about Jesus. The religious leaders are worried about Jesus because of Lazarus. 
And people are wanting to see Lazarus and hear about this sign, this miraculous thing that Jesus has done. So the book of signs is the public ministry of Jesus in the Gospel of John. The book of glory is the private ministry of Jesus, and it gives us glimpses into Jesus, the intimacy he had with the disciples that we get uh, nowhere else, nowhere else in any of the Gospels do we get this kind of detailed look and a magnificent glimpse into the glory of God from an intimate perspective. And in this passage before us here in John chapter 13, very famous passage, but in particular, we get a teaching on the glory of Christ as that which is manifested through his selfless act of giving himself as the servant king, the humble king, the one who serves before he is served, though he deserves all worship and all praise as the God of all creation, one who creates all things, the Lord of all. And yet he is the humble king. Jesus paints a sweeping picture here of all that he does in his life. This is really an illustration what happens here in John 13. It's an illustration of his incarnation, his humiliation, and his exaltation. All three of those things we'll see that Jesus paints a picture for us. He shows us the power of his atoning death. Not only does he show the power of his atoning death, but he shows the pattern of the example he gives to us for our lives. We have the power and the pattern as he gives us an illustration of his incarnation, his humiliation, and his exaltation. We read in verse 1 that the time has come, or the hour has come, for Jesus to finish his work, to go to the cross. We saw that this hour was brought on especially by the Gentiles who came to Philip. And they said, we would see Jesus. And that that triggers something in Jesus' mind. He knows that that means that the time has come. uh, Because it will be when he is lifted up that he will draw all men to himself. We saw that this morning. The ministry of Jesus is a drawing ministry. He has drawn the twelve to himself, these twelve apostles. He has called them out of the world. And soon he will do the same from people of all nations, of all tribes. He will draw them to himself out of the world. But it will be through these twelve that he is appointed for that purpose. And so because of that, that really paints a lot of the, the conversation, conversation between Jesus and the apostles in this private ministry. You'll see this, this dichotomy between what Jesus calls us to and the world. There, there are those he has called out of the world and there are those that are still in the world. There is a stark difference. And that's not because it's an us versus them kind of mindset. But rather, we see that it's, it's about patterns and principles. The patterns and the principles that govern the mindset of the world are different than the patterns and the principles that, mindset, that govern the mindset of those whom Jesus calls out of the world. And nowhere is that more clearly represented than in this passage right here in front of us. The patterns and the principles of Christ and that which he sets before us and that which he exemplifies for us and then calls us to. We see that perfectly and wonderfully exemplified here in John 13. So this is the special time that Jesus sets apart for his own. That is the 12 in order to teach them before they are sent out that they may recall uh, this night, this evening, 
and all of the teaching that he has for them. In verse 1, we read that he aims to show them the full extent of his love. A closer translation to this would be, he loved them to the end, unto the end. There are a couple different ways to take that. Does that mean that, that Jesus loves them to the end in a temporal way? He loves them until the end of his life, through his death on the cross. Or is that a statement of the quality of his love? He shows them how much he loves them. I think we can probably take it as a both and. Jesus is showing them the extent of his love in a temporal way and also in a qualitative way. He's showing them how much he loves them by going all of the way to the cross. The fact that this verse shows up here says that what Jesus is about to do in John chapter 13 is also going to be a a sign, something that points to the greatness of the love that he has for them. In other words, the washing of the feet functions as the picture that Jesus is showing them about his love for them. It's a living illustration, one that, that will speak to them now, but it will speak to them even more in the future. And it will continue to speak to them for years and years as they grow in understanding for what Jesus has done for them. We see evidence of that later on in the writings of the Apostle Peter, that this had a profound impact on him. The depth of Jesus' love is shown in the fact that he knows exactly what he is about to do. And he enters the crucible of suffering with eyes wide open, as it were. Turn your attention to verse 3. In verse 3, we read that he is aware of his sovereign power. It says that he knows that the Father has handed all things over to him. So he knows, he is aware of the nature of the power that he has. He knows that he can command and control all things. He's the God-man, the one through whom all things were created. Jesus is also aware of his past, isn't he? And by that, I mean that his past is an eternal one. The one who is eternally begotten of the Father, who is himself not made, who forever had lived in perfect enjoyment of his glory. And he had come from God's right hand. He's aware of his past. He's also aware of his future in verse 3. He knows where he is going. That his ultimate destiny is to return to the Father in unspeakable glory. So he knows his sovereign power. He knows where he comes from. He knows where he is going. This is power and authority and knowledge That's beyond what any other person in human history has ever had. And as we consider the unspeakable evils that have been done by those who assume power, those who come into power in the world, the possibilities of evil that become reality when a tyrant has unbridled freedom to do what he wants, to use and abuse others for his own ends, that should make us all the more amazed at what Jesus does at this moment and then later at the cross. For how does he use this power and authority and knowledge? Notice that verse 4 is connected to verse 3, right? It's in light of he knows his power, he knows his authority, knows his past, knows where he is going. And in verse 4 it says, because of this, then he stoops down to humble himself. In light of all of this, he gets up from this evening meal. And human beings who come into this kind of power serve themselves. And it's for this reason that Jesus will say he is calling us out of the world. Because the way that he shows to us, the way to which he calls us, 
is a way that is not of this world. The way he does prescribe is illustrated as he teaches about his incarnation, which he does in verse 4. Verse 4 is where we see the illustration of his incarnation. He gets up from the meal. So picture the twelve reclining at the table, feet going away from the table. Jesus gets up and he takes off his outer garment. At that time, the outer garment was a symbol of status. It meant that you had a respectable position in this life. And to remove that outer garment would have been something that would have almost never happened in the normal course of events out in public. And yet, here is Jesus taking off that which symbolizes his position in life, and he lays it to the side. So what Jesus is left with is wearing the outfit of a slave, of a servant. We see that further represented in the towel that he ties around. The slaves or servants would walk around, they would have towels because they would be washing and drying things. They would always be working with their hands, so they would need something to wipe off their hands. And what this pictures is Jesus setting aside his heavenly glory in order to fulfill the mission that's given to him by the Father. He takes off his outer garment. Bound up with his incarnation, his taking on a human nature, involved his, in a sense, setting aside his glory in order to become like a servant. It's not only his incarnation, but his humiliation that is illustrated and pictured here. And we see that in verses 5 through 11. If you can imagine the disciples at this moment, you can bet that they were thoroughly shocked and embarrassed by what's going on. Remember in chapter 12, we looked at it this morning, and uh, Matthew's account of that same story is that all of the disciples, not just Judas, but all of them were a bit put off by what Mary did in anointing the feet of Jesus. But this goes well beyond that. In In this culture, Peers did not wash each other's feet. If you were two equals, you never would have thought of washing each other's feet. Most people thought that Jewish slaves should not even wash another's feet. That should be reserved for Gentile slaves only. The lowest of the low. Those are the ones who wash feet. And yet here we have Jesus washing the feet of his disciples. Of course, they're looking to Jesus as their king the king of Israel, the one who was, who was appointed uh, by God himself to come and uh, to restore glory to the kingdom of Israel. And he's washing their feet. So most of the disciples remain silent, but Peter cannot. Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replies in verse 7, you do not realize what I am doing, but later you will understand. What is Jesus calling Peter to do here? He's calling him to have faith, calling him to trust him. Trust me, Peter, you do not know what I am doing, but you will understand later. There are many times in our own lives where we need to remember these words from Jesus to Peter. We won't always have a clear understanding of what God is doing, will we? But that does not mean that we are not to trust him. It's just the opposite. We must trust him in those moments. So Jesus calls Peter to trust him. Peter's response is the cultural equivalent would be something like, Never in a million years will you wash my feet. Jesus tells him that there is no other way. He must accept this act of humility, this act of humiliation and service, which his Lord is doing. Just like Peter, we must accept the act of humility of Jesus or humiliation 
the cross has always been an offensive message that King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, would have to humble himself and to die on the cross. But there is no other way. There is no other way to be reconciled to God. The cross embarrasses many people, uh, just as the disciples were embarrassed to watch Jesus stoop down to serve them. Israel was so embarrassed of the thought of their Messiah being crucified that they largely rejected Jesus. Uh, About 300 years ago, give or take, there were many thinkers in the Christian tradition that thought you need to really soften the message of the cross because the the whole idea of of religion, salvation, uh, being proclaimed through the blood of Jesus Christ will be too much for people to handle. So the message was tweaked in many ways. But unless we trust him, unless we accept his work on our behalf and accept what he does in stooping down, in, in humbling himself, unless we accept this act, we have no part in him. So Peter says, well, if that is true, then he wants Jesus to wash all of him. Jesus answers in verse 10, a person who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. In other words, Jesus says that this ceremony is pointing to something greater Something by which they are cleansed once and for all. And of course, he's talking about the cross and the salvation purchased for them there. Not everyone shared in that reality in that room, did they? A couple different uh, references here to Judas uh, by Jesus. But just think that Jesus even washes the feet of the one who would betray him. It points us to the amazing love And the humility of the Savior as he goes around that room and he knows exactly the one who is going to betray him. And remember how much Judas was against the action of Mary in the previous chapter. An unbelieving heart that's so embittered uh, about that would even be more so here watching Jesus go around this room and washing the feet of the disciples. And yet Jesus washes him. That is immense love and humility. Imagine how much Judas's heart would have broken as he realized what he did. As he remembered the way that in the face of his bitterness and evil, Jesus showed his humility and his love. Before we move on, we think about what Jesus is doing here. And there are some parts of Christendom who practice foot washing as a, a rite of the church or a sacrament of the church, you may be wondering, um, is this something that should be done? Is this sort of a normative practice? Well, a couple reasons why we would say no. That This is really an, an account of this. Uh, Jesus doing something does not make it normative, and we don't find any other evidence uh, in the New Testament that would command us to practice this as an ordinance of the church. But I think even more importantly than that, If we were to make this an ongoing ritual in the church that we did from time to time, we would miss the call that Jesus places upon our lives from it. For what Jesus calls to is like this. As you see me doing for you, so you go and do likewise all of your days. It's an enduring lesson. It's a a constant call upon us that we would humble ourselves so that we might serve those around us. We see that specifically in the last few verses of this passage. 
But first we have to see uh, the way in which Jesus takes us to the last aspect of that picture he paints. He's given us an illustration of his incarnation, an illustration of his humiliation. He's taken off his outer garment. He has stooped down to wash the feet. And then finally, he gives us an illustration of his exaltation. We read in verse 12 that when he finishes, he puts his outer garment back on, that which is emblematic of his status, and he returns to his place. If you've been paying attention, Jesus here has traced the exact pattern that his life on earth will follow, or has followed, incarnation, humiliation, and exaltation. This is actually wonderfully parallel to another very famous passage in the New Testament that speaks of these same aspects of Jesus' ministry. Philippians 2 says this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. He he took off his status. Being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Incarnation, humiliation. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, So that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess in heaven and on earth and under the earth that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He came to his own who did not receive him. He came to the world and the world did not recognize him. When Jesus is rejected in these ways in the Gospel of John, we see that Jesus does not entrust himself to those who reject him. But for those who do not reject him, For those who have been drawn unto him and to look to his work and accept him, look at how he entrusts himself to them. Look at the the lavish grace and love which he bestows on those whom he calls his own. He gives himself without reservation in lavish grace for blessing his people and for giving them eternal life. Full of love, full of grace, full of willingness to bestow riches. That's what Jesus pictures for us here in this wonderful passage. He becomes a servant to those who trust what he is doing, who let him stoop before us to serve. In the shadow of this action by Jesus, the disciples and we are left with no reasonable excuse to not do what the master himself has done. What servant can watch his master humble himself so completely and then act like doing such would be beneath Does a servant have the right to refuse what his master cheerfully does? Of course not. Of course not. Thus Jesus calls his disciples to remember and to follow his example of service. We think of Peter's reflections years later. He says this in 1 Peter. This is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He suffered for you, leaving you an example. Christ is is two things for us. He is two things, and we must remember both of these things, and we must remember both of them in the right order. The first thing is that Christ is the ground of our salvation. No one could ever die the sacrificial death that he did. That That is a central act that he did on our behalf. No one could ever, no one else could ever become 
the mediator between God and man. But beyond being the ground of our salvation, he also is our example. He becomes an example as he leaves the glories of heaven, as he stoops down to serve us. And then when he is exalted to heaven, he tells us, go and do likewise, always trusting in my work for you. And so we read Peter say later on in 1 Peter, and think of what Jesus, think of that Peter was there watching Jesus take off his garment, then put it back on. And Peter says this, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. That's the, the power of the cross, that it can break uh, a human heart that is embittered towards God. And Peter says in, in this passage, never, never in a million years, Jesus, will you wash my feet. Never in a million years. And aren't we thankful that there have been so many people in the history uh, of the church, in the history of humanity, that would have said that same thing. Never in a million years would I, would I look upon this Jesus of Nazareth. Nazareth and, and accept him as Lord. And yet we see that the power of the cross breaks in to a cold human heart. It breaks it down. And those same people who would refuse God and have refused God for years and years and years come to the place where they read, clothe yourselves with humility and they're able to obey because of the grace of God. The cross can still humble us. There may be parts of our lives that we're guarding, um, that we are afraid to, to give to the Lord, that we say, yes, we understand the gospel, yes, we believe in Jesus, but never in a million years can God have that aspect of my life. And maybe, maybe that's what the cross this year is calling us to bring unto the Lord, that we would give him all of us, that we would devote ourselves fully to him, that we would clothe ourselves in every aspect of our lives with humility, knowing that Christ is the ground of our salvation, but yet also he is our wonderful example. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and the treasure that it is and that we can go to it time and time and time again and still not always get uh, everything that, that is there for us. And thus we ask that you would bring this, this uh, passage to our hearts now, and that uh, you would illumine its meaning to